I'm not nervous. <laughs> not a bit. I'm here to tell you how I learned that I knew how to do this. Make you hold your breath. <laughs> when I was 20 years old, I did not want to fold shirts or be a camp counselor or scoop ice cream or be a lifeguard. No. <laughs> I had learned far too much at university. So I decided that instead I would take my 10 years of violin lessons and do something very bohemian, very avant-garde, as my mom often calls me avant-garde. I would go to the Pike Place Market in the city where I grew up, Seattle. And if you've been to the Pike, you know the Pike. The Pike is music and smells and flowers and hand-stitched clothing and wild people playing their songs and money getting put in their cases. That's what I paid attention to when I was small. And I thought to myself, I'm from this city. I've had 10 years of violin lessons. I didn't want to be a lifeguard. I don't want to be a camp counselor for the whole summer. Just two weeks is fine. But I will be a street musician. As I came to know, it's called a busker. You're a busker. So I took my violin which was far, far, far too valuable <laughs> to take out onto the streets of Seattle, but I did it anyway. I took my violin, and my sister made me a sign, much better than the one I'm going to show you now. Um, and it said, thanks. And it says, thank you. <laughs> uh, and I put that on my case, and that's actually all it took to go from a girl walking down the street with her violin to, to a busker. That's all it took. I would come to find out that it was a bit more to becoming a good busker, <laughs> one that made some money. Um, but for this first day, I just went out there. I had my tennis shoes on and my jeans. And at the time, I had a little shaved head, because that was who I was. Um, and I took my violin out, and I began to play. And I played a few songs that I had learned growing up. Um, let's see. money rolled in. <laughs> yeah. Like, I looked down after that first song, and there was like $10 in the case. And I was just standing there, playing things that were easy for me, right? And people were like, yeah, girl, go! Right? And giving me money, and giving me money. And it was awesome. And pretty soon, the money was, like, overflowing. And a breeze would go, or because it was the market, the, a bus would go by, and dollar bills would flow down the street. And because I was, like, probably small and cute and looked like I didn't know what was going on, somebody would be like, oh, let me grab your dollar. Right? <laughs> they put them back in the case. And this went on for about 45 minutes with these dollars blowing down the street and people, because it was always new people. That's one of the things about street music. It was cute every time. Right? <laughs> there was never, the, that's not, that's annoying now. Third time of thinking, no, it was always cute. <laughs> they were never going to see me again, right? So I said, okay, you know, and I was playing and the money was rolling in and I, I noticed that there was this man watching. 
And this man was really something else to look at. I, I knew it right away. He was wearing a long duster jacket, and it was too hot for a duster jacket, it was summer. Um, and he had on Levi jeans and this big turquoise belt buckle and this beautiful Western shirt. And his fingers had all these beautiful turquoise and silver rings on them. And he had this leather hat, leather cowboy hat, looked like Crocodile Dundee. Um, and his face, he looked like a bird of prey. He really did. He had this hook nose. And by all intents and purposes, he was not a handsome man, but he was a striking man. You know, and he had this button on his hat that said, um, get us out of Vietnam, crossed out with Iraq on it. You know, he was a tough guy, you know, kind of a veterany looking guy. And he was watching me. He was leaned up on the wall with his guitar case here, and he was shaking his head. <laughs> when I got to this lull in the music, right, and my dollars were blowing down the street, people were getting this, it was real cute. And uh, he came up to me at that lull and he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, I'm making money to play my violin. You know, and he said, no, what are you doing? What is all that doing in your case? And I said, well, they, um, these, these people gave it. He's like, yeah, I know how it works. <laughs> these people gave, why is it still in there? And I was like, I, I, he says, listen, anytime you have more than $5 in your case, take it out. Like now? Yeah, now. But they're all watching me. They're going to be gone in 30 seconds. New ones will be coming. Do it. So I did. I gathered up all these dollars. There was a lot of dollars, probably like 50 bucks in there. And I wadded it up and I put it in my back pocket. And it was empty except for some silver change. And he says, what are you doing? I was like, I, I watered them. It's. <laughs> and he said, put a dollar in there, or all you'll get is silver change. <laughs> so I took out a dollar, you know, and I'm showing it to him. And he's like, mm -hmm. just like that. <laughs> so I put the dollar in the case. I put the dollar in the case, and I continue playing. And lo and behold, the thing fills up again. It really was. People were like, oh, she's good. Why doesn't she have any money? She's no money. No money. She doesn't have any money. Do you have, I only have a five. Well, give her the five. She's watching. Give her the five. <laughs> I made even more money, right? I just made an amazing amount of money this day. My brother had a joke, because I think he dropped me off that day or something, and I was going to take the bus home, and he was like, I'm your manager when I got home. He was like, 30%. I dropped you off your first day. I got you your start. <laughs> so, um, but so that afternoon, and I stayed because you know when you're 20 years old, and the most you've ever made an hour is you know like eight bucks or something. And I was a really lucky suburban kid, so I didn't even work that much growing up. I volunteered a lot. I did a lot of work, but I didn't do get a lot of paychecks. So this was like a huge boom for me. I just couldn't believe it. Um, I probably shouldn't give it every penny to my parents for the lessons, but like, that's, that's a whole other story. So, um, so I, I was walking back to the bus station. I stayed late. It was probably about 7 o'clock, and around 5, the market closes. And if you've ever been around the Pike Place market after the sun goes down, it's a completely different world. People live there. They live there. They do drugs there. Um, they get hurt there, they hurt each other there. It is, as a native friend of mine said, bad medicine. But I didn't know that. 
So I was walking around with my way too valuable violin. Um, and I had that big wad of cash out of my pocket. And I was counting it. Oh, yeah. On the way, on the way to the bus stop at 3rd and Pine in downtown Seattle. And from behind me, I hear this gruff voice. Not what are you doing, but what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> oh, it was that guy who I found out his name was Falcon, Falcon Breeze, he went by. And I, I looked down at my wad of money and I said, I'm counting my money. And he said, yeah, and so is everybody else. <laughs> oh, and I looked around for the first time. I looked around and I noticed how many people were watching me and who was watching me and how they were watching me. And while he looked like a bird of prey, they were birds of prey. So he took his big duster jacket, he stood in front of me, he said, put that in a pocket. And I wadded it up and I put it in a pocket. And he walked me to the bus stop and he waited there at the bus stop with me. And he wasn't a big man, but he was not a man that I would ever mess with. And so he waited till I got on the bus and he said, don't ever let me see you do that again. Ever. Some stupid shit, girl. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so began my relationship, my love affair, really, with busking. And particularly, a very formative relationship in my life. One that I, I had no idea how much it would mean to me, with Falcon Breeze. Right? So I became Seattle's fiddling girl over a time period. It didn't happen right away. Um, I would go and I would play my violin. And I got kind of, you know, bored playing the same 10 songs, whatnot. And I thought, like, well, what should I do here? You know, what do I do? And Falcon was always really encouraging. He was like, no, you've got it. You're doing it. Do keep doing what you're doing. But I wouldn't listen. You know, I was like, no, there's got to be more for me here in the pike. I have to show these people my 10 years of violin lessons. So at some point, I went home and I broke out one of my old Vivaldi concertos, right? And I thought, this will really wow them in the pike. <laughs> They're gonna stop and listen and give me $10 each for this. Uh, so I, I brushed up on it, but the thing is I had it memorized at one point, but that was years ago, so I let it go. So I brought a little wire stand and it was windy, so I had to like duct tape the music to the stand. So it was kind of right in front of me, right? So say I'm looking at you, but there would be a music stand there. So no personal connection, just nothing, just music. And I began to play. I played the whole first movement. And it was, I was hot and I was sweaty. And I played it pretty darn well, and I got one dollar. One dollar. Um, and when I was finished, and kind of mad, because that's the least I've ever made for anything, and the most I'd ever worked for it, there was Falcon. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I'm playing my concerto. I'm playing my Vivaldi. You know, he was like, yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> There's like two people that know what that is. You know, I was like, 
Oh, he was like, you know, let me tell you something, Annie. Because I think, I think you got something. You make more than any of us down here, but you know, that's mostly because you're young. But let me tell you, when people give me a dollar, they're not giving me a dollar. They're giving the feather in my hat a dollar. And he did. He used to wear these brightly colored different feathers, sometimes a peacock feather, sometimes a blue jay feather. I was like, he said, or, or if it's not the feather in my hat, they're giving me a dollar because I'm their idea of what a cowboy looks like. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're their idea of what a cowboy looks like. He said, so what I'm telling you is this, because I wasn't really getting it, right? He said, you have to figure out what it is that you are that they have an idea about. And you have to play that up. Then they'll give you money. See, before they were giving you money because you were new and sweet. So stay new and sweet. Okay, okay. He's like, pick 10 songs. Songs you don't have to think about. You don't want to think about them when you're playing them because you want to be able to smile at the people. Wink at them, maybe look sad. Maybe, maybe once you know they're watching you, close your eyes and go inside. But only if you know they're watching you. Otherwise it's a lost moment. All right, so I was like, okay, okay. He was like, tell me a song you know that everybody knows. And I said, well, I seem to make some money when I play Oh Danny Boy. He was like, oh Danny Boy, that's a, that's a good one. He's like, you know why? No, because you know where they play that? Funerals. Funerals, Miss Annie. Funerals. You know what kind of funerals? Irish ones and military ones. I was like, oh. He was like, so it's easier to pick out the vets. So, so he said, tell you what. So I had this great spot, and the best spots were always like where crosswalk was. So I'd go stand at the stop, and the light would turn red. That's when you start. And you start by scanning that crowd. And if ever I saw one of those nice older men with those little caps and the pins on them, that's a veteran. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> that's how I learned that. But this is a veteran. And so he would say, you start playing that song. And you don't look at the first one that looks at you. You look at the one that looks at you longest. Right? So. <laughs>
Doesn't matter what you're playing, how many notes you miss. The hand goes to the wallet. The wallet comes out. They shuffle through, can't give her a one. The five comes out. The tear comes to the eye. They put the five in the case. And you thank them. They played that at Ronnie's funeral. <laughs> now, I did that really well. The one thing that Falcon would get so frustrated about with me is that when they cried, I would cry too. Their tear would come, and so would mine. And at first, he thought it was part of my gimmick. And then he'd realize that I had to take a minute after a song and just sort of breathe a minute because, my God, that made that man cry. And think about his friend Ronnie, <laughs> who I don't know, but I'm sure was a really brave soldier. You know, like, it just really got me. And so he would always discourage me from that. He'd, don't, don't, just, dude, they're, they're marks. They're marks. Now, another thing about this man is he was also um, a pool hustler, <laughs> which he never taught me anything about. Uh, but he was. So he did have this idea of the marks. And he was a man who had done three tours in Vietnam. Um, the second two because he didn't know what to do after the first tour. And he was obviously a pretty broken guy. And I learned that over the years. He used to have this big gulp with him. And I remember one day saying, boy, you really keep hydrated. <laughs> right? And he was like, Whatever. And then a couple days later, it was like a, a 40 of old English that he was pouring into this big gulp that he carried around with him all day. So he was self-medicating all day, you know? And um, he used to smoke these little rollies that felt, smelled kind of funny. You know, I've been to college. They were joints. And he would smoke them right out there on the street. And what he used to tell me is, I can sing for people. That's the last thing I can do. I can sing and I can play pool. That's it. I can't be in this world otherwise. So that's what he would do. And he taught me the thing about the veterans and the sad song. And then one day, um, kind of still, because I was kind of like a hobby. He was like, I'm working on your image. I'm working this out. He was like, you know what you need? And I was like, well, he's like, you need a better outfit. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> he was like, number one, those are, those are ugly. <laughs> I was like, OK, well, what do you think I should wear? And he looked down at his boots, and he said, cowgirl boots. So I went and I got myself um, this cheap pair of cowgirl boots. And I've got my unicorn socks on. <laughs> and I put the cowgirl boots on. I think I actually got them at a garage sale for like $4 or something down in LA. Because I didn't do it right away. I waited a minute. I was like, I don't know if I'm a cowgirl. Um, but I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I am. So I put my boots on. And I remember the first day that I went out in my boots, my hair had started to grow and it was about this long now. I put it in two braids. And suddenly I was this girl with a fiddle and braids and boots. It was like that first day money came rolling in, right? And he was like, that's good. That works. Okay? And I was like, he's want to borrow that? I was like, no, I don't want to borrow the hat. <laughs> 
right? So he ended up, um, he said, okay, well, do you, do you sing? Because you, you have a good voice. Do you sing? And I said, I do sing. He says, well, learn some songs. Learn some simple songs and sing them. I said, do you, should I? No, just sing them. Okay, so I remember the first song I sang out there was, Michael, roll your boat ashore. Hallelujah. Oh, Michael, roll your boat ashore. Hallelujah. And people were like, <laughs> right? And especially people came around the corner because I'm little. And I get to that last verse. The Jordan River is chilly and cold. Hallelujah. Chills your body but not your soul. Hallelujah. And they'd be like, what is that big woman? Yeah. That's exactly what would happen. And it would be me in boots and braids. <laughs> and they'd give me money. Right? Um, and then one day he said, you need to learn to play something. And I said, I've always wanted to play the guitar. He said, no, everybody plays the guitar. It's shit. <laughs> You're the fiddling girl. You play the mandolin. So I thought, okay. You know, and then I, I looked up the mandolin. I was like, well, it makes sense. It's the same strings as the violin. It's just on its side. Okay. So I remember my mama took me to get my first mandolin. And I said, well, what do I learn on it? He just says, learn GDNA. <laughs> That's it? That's it. So I did. And, um, you know, I came back because immediately I wrote a song. I was like, I'm going to write a song. So I wrote a song. And um, I came back and I said, okay, I learned some songs. He said, which ones? I said, well, I wrote one. He said, no, it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> number, rule number one, they have to know what you're playing. And I was like, okay, well, like, sure, okay. Uh, he's like, all right, you know, you can give it a go. It's not going to work. And I said, well, I think, I, think it's an, I think it's a good song. He said, it doesn't matter. It's like your concerto. So I took my mandolin, now extremely nervous, because he had just told me I was going to fail. And he had always been right. Right? Always. So I started to play.
that line's been used a lot. <laughs> Find something new, right? And so I would, and I'd kind of work on this and that, and he was real sweet, and I remember he was pretty protective of me. He used to watch the way that I would um, interact with everybody, and I was an open book. You know, everybody knew which street I lived on. Everybody knew what my, my brother and sister's names were. They knew which bus I took home. You know, everybody, everybody, didn't matter who they were. Um, and I've always been open like that with people, especially, I think, um, with people that might frighten others. I just don't have that bone in me, really. I had um, a very loving home, grew up in the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the reason why I've done some of the things I've done. I don't know any better. <laughs> right? So one day I was walking, and I kind of own the market at this point. The vendors wanted me to sing by their stalls because it was fun to watch. People weren't like, oh, that guy, like, why is he still playing this, you know, whatever it was that they were playing? Or, you know, I was just harmless. I invited people in. I would sing with the preschoolers, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And they all hold up their little fingers. You know, nobody was afraid of me. I learned how to make balloons from a crazy bipolar street clown. Like, you know, <laughs> all kinds of great stuff happened. But one day I remember Falcon um, and I were sitting down under the Alaska Way viaduct. And he was smoking one of his funny little cigarettes. And I was strumming along on my mandolin. And he said, Annie, I worry about you. And I said, why? He's like, because you give people too much credit. You trust people way too much. I said, what do you mean? Like, this is great. I'm, I'm Seattle's fiddling girl. <laughs> There's nothing to be afraid of. And he looked at me. And he said, look around you. And I looked around me. And it was quiet. And it was far away from other people. There was a few people maybe 200 yards away. But we found the secluded spot because of the special cigarette. And, um, and he looked at me dead in the eye, and his eyes are piercingly blue. And he looked at me with that, you know, hawk face. And he said, you know, I could hurt you right now. And I was really taken back. He said, you know, I could rape you. That's how I felt. And he says, I'm not gonna, and that's because you're lucky. I sat with that for a number of years. 
and I remembered the looks on the faces of the people watching me count my money as I left the market. And I thought about some of the different experiences I'd had, and that's when Falcon began to teach me other things, really important things. I remember one day we were playing out together, because sometimes we play together, and he, was, he actually had a great old chugging style of guitar and did a bunch of Johnny Cash songs. He looked like a skinny hockey man in black, you know? <laughs> um, so we were playing one day, and I'd always been modest, you know, I'd always um, played up my innocence. But no matter what, you always get heckled a little bit. So I was playing, and one thing Falcon told me is busking is the last job on earth where people pay you what they think you're worth. And that always struck me as a really cool thing. You know, when somebody gave me that 20, they were like, that 30 seconds of music was worth an album. And I'd be like, oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> keep on moving. But this day we were playing, and it was kind of a half busy, half quiet time in the market, you know, lots of space. And uh, we were playing Folsom Prism Blues, and I was chugging along with my fiddle, and he was playing his guitar. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a nice crowd of like family people, and then this group of um, teenagers, or not teenagers, they were like frat boys, like college boys, like UW boys came. And they started really kind of ogling and saying silly things to me and being a little bit rude and inappropriate. And, um, you know, Falcon broke one of his rules, which was he talked to them and he said, What are you going to drop something in there or move on? And essentially, I think he felt like they were going to move on, but instead, one of them took their wallet out and kind of waved it at him in this real snotty way, it opened it up, took out a five, and waved it for everybody to see and put it in the basket. And he said, I'm talking to her. Right? And Falcon did something that you never do, and he stopped playing. He just did a big boom chord. And he looked at me, and I was like, you know? And he said, is that what you're worth? And I knew at that moment what he wanted me to do. And I so wished I thought of it myself. And I put my violin under my arm, I went, I grabbed that five, I said, I do not need it that bad. And those guys turned beet red and the crowd was like. <laughs> and they moved on. And I finished playing. So those two things, watch your back. Look around you. Know what you're worth to yourself. These were some of the things he taught me without teaching me, without ever preaching to me. And he always said, I'm not teaching you anything you don't already know. I'm just showing you what you can already do. And I remember I went, I went to college, I finished college, I moved to a place called Humboldt County, and part of what happened when I worked with Falcon on those streets was that I met a lot of people who lived on the streets, or very close to it. And a lot of those people, like Falcon, took very good care of me and were extremely kind to me. And when I heard about their stories and the fact that so many of them were veterans, or so many of them had disabilities, or so many of them came from disenfranchised populations, as I learned in school, disenfranchised populations, I felt very called to work with these folks. So that's what the first eight years out of college were. I worked with people who were disenfranchised low-income, people of color, uh, people caught in the cycles of violence or of poverty, and that was something he was never down with. After he heard me sing that song in the street, he wanted me to be a performer. That's what I should have been. 
So he would dismiss my stories about the work I did with people very easily. And I also noticed that he never, ever, ever put himself in the same place as the people he shared that sidewalk with. He was always a little bit above. And people kind of didn't like that. <laughs> he had sort of a reputation as a snotty dude. Um, and summers passed. I started coming home less and less often for less and less time, started playing less. Um, and then after a while, I just didn't see him. And I stopped doing very much music. I was really consumed with the work I was doing at this time with young people. And I finally, at some point, somebody was like, you know, you really ought to go, um, because they'd seen me do some stuff. They saw I was funny. They knew I had a degree, college degree in storytelling. They said, why don't you go to this clown school? So I did in Humboldt County. And it was really hard. And I found out there that Falcon was right. I did know how to hold a room. I could really pull people in. There was something about me and my big weird eyes and my huge and funny faces I could make that people really responded to. Um, so I did some of that in Humble, and then I moved to Portland. And for some reason, Portland struck me as such a big bowl, and I felt like such a small fish that I just didn't even look into doing any of that when I got up here. Um, instead, I applied for the first job that pulled my heartstring, and it was as a 12-hour host in an overnight emergency winter shelter for the city of Portland, um, managed through an unnamed social services agency. Um, <laughs> shall remain unnamed. Um, and I got the job. Primarily because I had a lot of experience working with people who are on the fringes. Um, I'd also had experience uh, working with people who were inebriated or perhaps mentally ill or actively using um, or had experienced domestic violence or had been adjudicated or incarcerated. I had experience with these folks. So I got this job and on my first night of work, it snowed a foot and a half in Portland. Oh. Yeah, you remember that? Mm -hmm. 08. Yes. Snowpocalypse. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> I was on the front lines of the snowpocalypse. And I, I got to work that night, and I had been really excited. And I had spent the, the night before, because I wanted to stay up, and because it was 7 to 7, 12-hour night shift. Um, and I'd made this little sign that said, Welcome, out of felt and black cloth. And it had a little candle in it with kind of the lights coming off the candle. And it just said, Welcome. And I went into shelter feeling so excited for this work, so excited to be able to give those folks that I spent those summer days with a place to go on this winter night. I really was excited. And I came down the stairs to the basement where uh, the shelter was, and it was probably not fire hazard approved, but it was one stairwell. And in this basement, there were supposed to be 70 people, 20 men and 50 women. But it was snowpocalypse. <laughs> so there were 140 people wow. in this basement. And the manager at the time came up to me and she said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm good. And she's a really cool woman. I really grew to respect her. And she looked at me, she said, this is it. And I said, yes, it is. And the smell was incredible and the sounds were incredible. And um, it was that place that the pike turned into after dark. It was really bad medicine down there, and it was very scary. There were pregnant women. 
uh, next to people who are obviously nodding out, um, next to people who are talking to themselves and snapping the wall. I mean, the craziest thing I've ever seen to this day. And I did a lot of this work afterwards. And I remember coming down and having my little welcome sign and literally like I let go of it and it opened. <laughs> right? And she's like, oh, that's beautiful. We'll find some place to hang it, throw, right? You're going to be a little too busy for that girl. So, and it was, it was wild. Um, I, I had a very elderly woman for a partner and then a, um, an ex-military guy as a partner and they hated each other. And I remember on the second night, um, I, my mom had called me on the cell phone, like right when I had gotten into work. And I had had a bad night with these guys before and it was only getting worse because I walked in and this guy walks up and he says, I cannot stand that woman. I can't stand her. I won't talk to her. And I was like, oh. And then I walked up and she was like, I don't know. What is the problem with that man? I will not talk to him. I was like, because it's, it's, we're like a team, right? No, not a team by myself. And so my mom calls and I'm like, hi, mom. Hi, Alma. She's like, oh, hi, honey. How is it? I'm so interested in how it is for you. And I was like, it's good. Do you feel safe? Yes. Is it well managed? Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you have a strong team? Oh, yeah. <laughs> really strong. This, this place is tops. All right, Mom, I love you. Que te quiero. All right. Okay. Bye. Click. <laughs> right? It was really scary. And it, it is probably the biggest lie I've ever told my mom <laughs> was that I was safe there. Um, so time marches on, and I find that my talents as a clown, as a storyteller, as a street musician, and as somebody who likes people, serve me better in that job than anything else, right? Um, for example, when somebody needed to feel like I was listening to them, I would listen to them. When somebody needed to know that they needed to listen to me, they would listen to me. When I needed to diffuse a situation, I knew way before most of my other coworkers because I'd seen fights break out all the time on the street. And I'd seen how people handled them. You just separate the fighters. It goes away 90% of the time. If you go up there and you're like, hey, um, you're not supposed to be using that language, and it's really important that, excuse me, hey, I'm calling 911. Yeah, that's usually how it would go down with, with my partners. And I would sort of do this thing where I'd go right before I knew something was going to happen, and I'd say, hey, um, do you mind walking with me over here? Okay, and they'd walk with me. And I'd say, so it's 29 degrees outside and it's raining and sleeting. Um, the choice that keeps you in is being neutral, because I know you're not going to be nice. The choice that gets you out is whatever you were just about to do. And these big guys, little guys, big women, small women, um, they would sort of 
you know, but you can't posture to somebody who's a foot and a half shorter than you. <laughs> it just feels silly, right? And I would take a step back so they couldn't loom, take my space, hold my stage, hold my corner, and they would go 90% of the time. Right? Now there was one night when the scariest thing ever happened to me, and I do, I do credit Falcon for saving my life that night, right, in absentia. Because I walked into the shelter, um, and in, in the shelter set up like this, there's 20 women sleeping in a small room, a common area, and then 50 guys in a big room. But usually we'd sneak about, you know, five or six extra in. So it was very crowded, and they slept about 18 inches apart. And every time I'd come through and the lights were on, they'd say, woman on deck. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, you're a woman. Um, and uh, I actually perfected the art of dressing like a box. <laughs> well, I worked at that shelter. You couldn't tell what was under there. Um, but uh, I, I came in, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was doing something. I used to paint pictures a lot while I was there. And um, 3 o'clock in the morning, I hear yelling from the other room, from the men's sleeping area. And it is a string of racist... Um, superlatives and craziness like I, I've never heard but just inward this in 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 I'm gonna tear your throat out you enters and this and that and one thing to know about Portland is that it's not just full of white people mm -hmm. it's just that the people of color most likely don't live next door to you if you're white that's just not the way the city is but they're everywhere and they belong here just as much as anybody and I encourage you to learn the history of some of our neighborhoods. But in winter shelter is like a 50-50 mix. Yeah. White people, brown people, black people, purple people, yellow people, polka dot people, all kinds of people. And when somebody sits up in winter shelter and yells something like, I'm going to tear your throat out, you enters, half the people in the room sit up. And that's what happened. I heard it, I grabbed my elderly coworker, <laughs> and she sort of came along with me because her eyes didn't adjust well to the dark, that's one thing I learned really quickly, um, and I, I, I found the source of the noise, and by the time I got over there, and I knew not to, to touch people because they'd punch you, um, I, I found some watered up socks or something that had been lying around in somebody else's shoe, and I hopped him at the sky, you know, because he was in, he was sleeping. He was saying this in his sleep. And so I woke him up, winged him a good one to the face, and he sat up. But when he sat up, what I didn't realize is that when he looked out, what did he see coming up off the mats? People of color. And he lost his mind. He lost his mind, and he screamed at the top of his lungs, everything he had been saying and more. And my coworker was literally running around like this. Oh! Oh! And she was sort of dancing around me. Oh, really killing my strong effect, right? Didn't, didn't work the same. You know? So I said, hey, so-and-so, because I won't use your name, go call 911. I don't have a go get a phone. <laughs> go get a phone. Right? So she did. And at this point, I'd gotten kind of a reputation at the shelter for being helpful, for being nice, for being respectful, for being all the things that I was taught by my good family to be. Right? So I turned around with this guy at my back and I said, hey, 
And these guys sort of stopped. It's that nice one. Okay. Dude, you know, I was like, listen, he's doing the wrong thing. He's leaving. If this goes any farther, there will be a lot of other people gone. He's leaving. And he piped up, I'm not leaving, you C word, this and that. I'm going to do, and he said to me, some things I won't repeat that he would do to my person um, that I would not wish on anybody, not in a war zone, anywhere. They were horrible. I think about them to this day and my skin crawls. Um, and that made those guys even matter because I was the nice one. Whoa! We're gonna blah, blah, blah to you. And I'm like, hey now, I'm 10 feet tall. No one's doing anything, right? And somehow, these guys, one or two of them said, all right, back up, back up. I said, it'd be really great if you went to your mats and at least sat down. That big voice coming out of this small thing. So they went to their mats, and a lot of them stood standing, cracking their knuckles, grinding their teeth. And it's dark in this room. It's dark. And this guy finally, and I don't know if he knew what he was doing, but he started to put on his shoes. And I was like, listen, you need to get your shoes on, get your things, and leave now. In about two minutes, I can't do anything to help you. And he did. He left. From that point on, they call me Scrapper. <laughs> Good name. Um, and so, you know, this went on, and about a week after that happened, my reputation solidified. A really crazy thing happened. And this... Um, Man had been coming in and out of the shelter, and it was horrible. I mean, it was snowy for like three weeks. I don't know if you remember. Um, they had a complete operation to keep people from dying. And anybody that didn't die on the street, I would say that a large majority of them did not die because they were coming to our shelter or one like it. So as crazy as it was to run a shelter like that or to ask that of people, I'm glad I was there. And believe you me, somebody is always glad when there's a roof over their head. And somebody's sort of in charge. Don't ever let that turn you off from supporting social services. They care. It means something. So as I'm doing this shelter job and falling more and more in love with it, quite honestly, and feeling more and more important to this place, because I do realize I'm one of the competent ones, <laughs> not just my sort of competent. Um, so uh, I, I helped this man a bunch of days, this bent old man with his bags up and down the stairs, because the stairs were hard. And that was the least last, you know, what's what I could do for him. And I remember one day, um, it was like 6.40 in the morning. Everybody had to leave at 6.45. And he had these really swollen feet that he scrunched into these cowboy boots, just super swollen. And I actually was, like, trying to help him adjust his socks. And, um, and they smelled bad, and he was obviously really dirty. And uh, I remember I was trying to adjust his sock, and I looked up at him. And I saw his face, and his eyes, and his hook nose, oh. it was my teacher, it was my protector and my friend. Did you play music in the pike? Mm -hmm. And he looked at me really funny. 
said, hey, is your name, is your name Falcon Breeze? And now he was kind of coming back. And I didn't look like me at this shelter. You wouldn't know me. You couldn't see me. It's not what I was selling. And he looked at me sideways. And at one point, he had this uh, possum named Radar that he raised from a baby possum that used to sit on his shoulder when he played. Yeah, that's a gimmick. <laughs> People give lots of money to possums. <laughs> so, and, I, and so I asked, I said, because he was really like, and he was backing up for me, but I knew who it was. I said, did you have a possum named Radar? And he looked at me. And he had that look, that really drawn face of somebody who does a lot of drugs and doesn't eat a lot. And I looked down at his hands, and he had the marks from where, you know, it doesn't go in here anymore. It doesn't go in here anymore. So you start putting it in here. You start putting it in here. All those different places it can go. Uh, and, but he looked at me, and his eyes cleared, and he got really big, and he said, Fiddling girl? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he said with such disdain, I should have known you'd end up in a place like this. <laughs> you cannot make that stuff up, right? So, so began the second phase of our friendship, where I did everything I could to totally ignore what was before me. This man was killing himself, slowly, with a needle in his arm. Um, but wanted to hold on so much to that man I'd known. And so we would spend late nights chatting in that shelter, because everybody would go to bed, but a few people would stay up, and I would help him get his coffee in the morning. And I didn't exactly break rules, but I kind of bent him. I'd make sure he got an extra blanket. I'd make sure that if we had chapstick that came in, I would save him a stick. You know, just little things like that. Um, and people noticed a little bit that we had this friendship. And one thing about Falcon is he was always a ladies' man, always. And so it tickled him to no end that all of these fellas saw the nice one being extra nice to him. Like, he really liked that. That was like, yes, I'll take that chapstick. Thank you very much. Right? So, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. You know, um, and this went on for a while, and I couldn't help but notice, because I was learning a lot that year. I learned what crack smelled like. Um, I learned that you don't ever just sort of do this to the toilet paper holder because sometimes a needle flies out. Um, I learned what bed bugs look like, all kinds of things. I learned what you do for um, really bad frostbite on people's feet when they refuse to go to the hospital. Um, I learned that it is perfectly okay to tell a paramedic to get out, your partner can stay, he's not refusing care, he's refusing care from you. I learned you can do that. You can also take their card. <laughs> so, um, so with all of that, I managed to ignore what I was seeing with Falcon. Until one day, uh, a night, it was about 11, and I was going through the men's shelter area, checking, seeing what was going on. And I came back to Falcon's mat, which was in the corner, and he was sitting on his mat. And his sleeve was rolled up. Oh. And there was no needle in his arm, but it was tied off. And he had obviously used in our shelter. Um, and I didn't really think about what I was doing because it was just after lights out, but I knelt down and I was so angry. And I just, I 
got his ear and I shook him and I said, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And he came out of that stupor and he looked at me and he said, fiddling girl. And I said, no, listen, the fuck do you think you're doing? I can't, we can't have you here. You want to die with a needle in your arm? And I'm kind of yelling this or stage whispering really, do you want to die with a needle in your arm? Which makes everybody notice. So they're all sitting up and here's one thing. Those people liked me because they knew that I cared a lot. And so it hurt them to see me care about somebody who didn't obviously care about himself. And so a bunch of them tried to stop me and they said things like, fucking forget it. He's dead. He's already dead. He's a walking corpse. Leave it. He died in not. And they didn't know what I knew about him. And they didn't know what he knew about me. So I turned around with all the fierceness that had stopped that what could have been a mighty brawl, and I just turned to them and I said, shut up, you have no idea what this man means to me. And that was so surprising that the officer was like, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of time. And they curled back on it. And the deal I made him was, was this, he slept there because he couldn't even walk. And in the morning, I stopped him at the door and I said, listen, you cannot come back to shelter tonight. Hardest thing I did. And I said, you're a vet. You go get treatment. You are dying in front of my eyes. And I'm not going to help you do it. And he, at this point, started to walk away and kind of push me. And I said, you taught me how to sing. And he just said, and he left. him go and I cursed every rule in the rule book that shelter that kept me from taking him home from giving him money from doing all those things that you shouldn't do really on a regular basis um, and I went on doing my work now on the last night of shelter we had a potluck and it was sort of an inspiration from my time in Northern California <laughs> with the hippies, because they love potlucks. Um, and it was not a celebration that we were closing the shelter. It was a celebration of the community that we had made. Because truly, nobody died. There really weren't very many fights. Uh, people, for the most part, were incredibly gentle and kind and tolerant of each other. And I told people that all the time. I'm so impressed by you, I would, say, I would say to people. Wow, you handled that beautifully. Thank you so much. Now, I said thank you a million times a night, because there's three of us, and however many there were of them, it's never us. It's always them, who are really us. Yeah? So we had this potluck, and... You know, we're dishing out the mac and cheese, and it was really a nice spread. And all of a sudden, downstairs comes Falcon. And he's about 10 pounds heavier. He's wearing all clean clothes. He's lost those boots and is now wearing the most ridiculous pair of gigantic sneakers I've ever seen because his feet are still really swollen. And he's so vain. You know it's killing him, right? So... Uh, but he comes down the stairs, and a few of his old street buddies are like, hey, it's Falcon, and I, I lost all composure, 
and I did, I'm sure, what he hoped I would do. I put down my macaroni spoon, and I ran across the shelter, and I gave him a huge hug and a kiss on the cheek, and he was like, mm-hmm, taking this kiss, put it in my pocket, and all those guys were like, why did he get a kiss? <laughs> big funny shoes, right? And, um, and so for the rest of the night, we, um, you know, he ate, and he was in sober housing with the VA, and he'd been sober for a month and a half, uh, and he never really said thank you, but he showed up. And at the end of the night, I brought some instruments, and somebody there had a guitar, and um, you know, he said, why don't, you, why don't you sing me something? And I was like, oh, I will. And there was a song that I'd written um, a couple years before for a girls' camp, <laughs> which seemed really appropriate um, for him. And so I sang him the song. And uh, the more that I was singing it, the more I realized how much it was true. And he was a real stoic guy, never saw him cry. But this time he looked away from me. He looked anywhere but me while I sang the song, so I know he heard it. I'm a shooting star.
Falcon said, well, curfew's 10. And I have some blocks to walk in these fucking shoes. <laughs> so <laughs> hated those shoes. And, uh, and so I, um, you know, I put my guitar down, and, uh, and he had some bags with him. Like, he always had bags with him. And uh, I helped him with his bags uh, just kind of halfway up the stairs. And he stopped me. He said, I got it. I feel a lot better. I can do these stairs now. I said, okay. And um, I said, well, you know, and he was like, I understand you can't give me your phone number because of your agency's policies. <laughs> I said, yeah, okay. He said, but, I, you know, I'll let you know how I'm doing. I'll drop a note, notes by your work. So I said, okay. And um, as he turned around, he said one thing to me, which I will never forget, and which definitely, definitely brought me here today. And the thing that he said was, Miss Rosen, Miss Annie Rosen, I certainly hope you don't stay in the basement because you can hold the hall. Thank you. Mm -hmm.